there used to be huge ash trees here. And, you know, 25 years ago, they were still standing, but they were all dead due to the emerald ash borer. So slowly those giants toppled and made big holes in the canopy. So we've got an uneven aged forest now because we lost so many of those large trees. That's botanist Ellen Jacart remembering the ash trees of yesteryear, which is also this year because she's talking from the future on how to survive the future, a show I made a while back about how the world might feel in 10 or 25 years. This week, Ellen and I take a walk in the year 2045. Then I talk with the director of a new documentary about a leading athlete of the early 20th century. He was a black track cyclist and a superstar. All that and more after this. Hey, it's Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. Spring feels like it's around the corner, especially with this warm weather we've been having. It seems like it just keeps getting warmer. So we're going to head to a time when it's even warmer than it is now with an episode of How to Survive the Future. Botanist Ellen Jacart and I took a walk at McCormick's Creek State Park in the year 2045. It was hot, but the woods made it feel a little cooler. Here's our walk. Hello. I think, you know, sort of walking and talking will be good. Um, and then maybe at some point we'll, you know, sit quietly and talk a bit. Okay. If you're open to that. I am. I have until 11.30. That's totally fine. All right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a pretty one. What's, what's that? Appendaged water leaf or great water leaf because it's the greatest water leaf. It really is. There are other, several other species, but smaller flowers, blah, kind of looking, frankly. This is just a gorgeous one. Look at those flowers. Wow. Yeah, that sort of lavender. Mm-hmm. It's an exuberant, just sort of so many buds and flowers on one plant. And that's a really small plant. A big plant can be, you know, two feet around with just dozens and dozens of flowers hanging on it. And there's one yep. surviving in the midst of the yeah. nettles. <laughs> Good luck, Gutty. Botanists are so used to this phenological calendar that we know when things are going to be flowering. And when we see things that are flowering a full month earlier than they used to, it's hard not to see that and, and realize that has implications. I mean, we all love seeing flowers, so, you know, seeing them earlier in the year, that's great. But they're supposed to have pollinators, and the insects that are pollinating them aren't necessarily following the same schedule that the plants are. The plants are tuned into day length and temperature. And insects, you know, may have a different calendar. So if we've got plants flowering and the pollinators aren't out yet, that's a big problem. When I started working for the Nature Conservancy, I took a trip up to near Michigan City, Indiana, where we had a beautiful fen called Trail Creek Fen. And I went up with the steward that handled that site, and we walked happily through the fen in our rubber boots because it was mucky, and there was skunk cabbage, and there was marsh marigold, and there was all kinds of stuff there. And then I got to this part of the fen, and there was this huge shrub. It was about eight feet tall and about eight feet wide, and it was, it was massive. And I thought, I do not know what this thing is. I started looking in guides and nothing, there were no flowers to look at at that point. And I could not figure out what it was. And then I looked around the base of it and I saw hundreds and hundreds of little shrublings that were clearly the same species as whatever this was. And I realized, oh no, this has got to be something non-native and it must be invasive because look at all of this. And finally, 
We put together all the cues we could. We, we looked in the guide and we came out to, it was Privet. It really struck at my heart because this was a fen that had lady slipper orchids. It had all this stuff. And as those little privet shrubs were gonna grow, they were gonna completely shade that stuff out. And what really made the biggest impression on me, as I was kind of stomping out of the fen, back to the truck, thinking about how much time and energy it was gonna take the steward to cut out that big one and then deal with the smaller ones, I finally raised my eyes and I looked at the neighbor. The neighboring property was a house about 100 yards away and they had a hedge. And that hedge was eight foot tall privet all around the house. For the first time, it was truly clear how landscaping with invasive plants was really decimating our nature preserves. I haven't been back there in years, but I'm, I'm wondering what it looks like now because it's, it's not an easy thing to engage with a neighbor and convince them to get rid of a very large hedge. And I, I was afraid that the future was not bright for that fen. I'm Ellen Jacart. I am a retired ecologist and spend my time hiking and, and looking at wildflowers and doing native landscaping in my yard. We are in McCormick's Creek State Park. It is late spring, uh, kind of late May, where a lot of the early spring wildflowers have started to fade, but the late spring wildflowers are in full glorious bloom. How long have you been coming to McCormick's Creek? Oof. Just about 50 years. Wow. Yeah, that's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and has it changed? Well, um, probably the biggest change that I notice is when I walk through 50 years ago, there were little dirt paths. Those were the trails. And then about 30 years ago, they decided, no, these need to be bigger trails to accommodate the increasing people that were coming to enjoy the park. And it turned into uh, gravel trails that were, you know, 10 feet wide. And then more people came and the gravel wasn't holding up well. So they decided that they needed to make them wider and asphalt. So now much of the park, what used to be small trails, it, it kind of looks like county roads going through them without the dashed line in the middle. So the, the trails have gotten bigger, which has kind of broken up the forest even more. And there's still a problem with the deer population. The deer had been identified as a problem at McCormick's Creek State Park many years ago, 40, 40 years ago. And they've tried to reduce the population, but it hasn't been um, as successful as it should be. So we find that a lot of the most palatable species, the things that deer want to eat, kind of disappear. And we get more and more nettles. We're going to see a lot of nettles. And what are some of the ones that they have been eating? Oh, the trilliums. They love the trilliums. The orchids, the showy orchis is, is a nice late spring uh, flower, and it's really unlikely we're going to see one today because deer just love uh, orchids, and so uh, those are pretty much gone. The, the ones that hang on are like the Guyandot beauty because it's a mint and it tastes funny. The deer don't tend to eat it as much, so that we still have. Another change we've seen is there used to be huge ash trees here. And, you know, 25 years ago, they were still standing, but they were all dead due to the emerald ash borer. So slowly those giants toppled and made big holes in the canopy. New species came up. Um, not as many oaks as, as were in the canopy before, because these small light gaps don't really 
help oak species that much. But um, so we've got um, an uneven aged forest now because we lost so many of those large trees. There's lots of little patches of young trees filling in behind the ash that all died. And did the ashes die in the 20 teens, was it? Yeah, um, Emerald Ash Borer first came in in 2001 in Michigan, 2005 in Indiana, I believe. And really the first ash deaths in this area of McCormick's Creek, oh gosh, it was probably um, 2015 or so. And then they slowly died one by one. I see. Uh, yeah, let's go down the... Should we go down here at the paper path? Okay, great. Hi. So did people just realize with the ash borer that it was just inevitable? Yeah, in the early years, there was this sense of somehow we would keep it from moving outside of Detroit, where it came in. Mm. And they set up what they called fire breaks, where they would go in and on a very large scale, remove all ash trees for like a mile wide. Uh, This was in northern Indiana to try and keep it from coming in. And that did not work. (laughs) And so it came in and slowly spread um, through the state, moving to the south. And uh, now it's pretty well established. Um, And we've got very few ash trees left. There's one species called blue ash. And there's some of that in this park. And it doesn't seem as susceptible to emerald ash borer. So there's still blue ash, but the white ash, the green ash, black ash, and pumpkin ash pretty much all died. McCormick's Creek State Park is a big state park, and the first state park created in Indiana. And it's known for having just spectacular plants, uh, native plants and, and spring wildflower displays in particular. And I remember being there, you know, when I was younger and just being blown away by the number of species and then the, just the sheer um, display, the, the swaths, the swords of, of native plants. There's a place you can go or you used to go, um, there were a couple of big old logs, sycamores that had come down and just kind of crisscrossed uh, in this low area, which was right next to the stream that flows into McCormick's Creek. So you've got this creekside location. And all along the way, you're seeing green dragon and jack in the pulpit and spring beauty and celandine poppy and all of the beautiful, you know, spring ephemerals. And later in the season, as those have just started to fade, the pink turtle head would come out. And until it's in flower, you don't even notice that plant because it's it's about a foot tall. It's not huge. The, fl- the leaves are re- not real noticeable. But then suddenly it comes into flower. And it's called turtle head because the flower looks like a turtle head on end, like the mouth of the turtle is sticking up into the sky. And the common species is the cream-colored turtle head, which is a nice little plant. But pink turtle head? You've got all these little pink turtle heads. And it's like a field of them as you're walking along the trail. Hundreds and hundreds of plants. And a a site that you wouldn't see anywhere else in Indiana, because it really is a pretty rare plant. But just an absolute abundance of it as you just walk through and, and look at those beautiful plants. And what were some of the um, the shrubs and plants that did used to be here? Well, there used to be uh, nodding trillium, lots and lots of nodding trillium, prairie trillium, toad shade. Those are uh, also trillium species. Oh, this used to be a place for putty root orchid. 
there was putty root orchid everywhere, which is one of those strange uh, winter orchids. We have a couple of orchids in Indiana that they put out their new leaf in late fall and it overwinters because, uh, you know, plenty of sun is coming through because the trees don't have any leaves on. Right. It's photosynthesizing all winter. Then come next May, it puts up the shoot of orchid flowers, about a foot tall, uh, and then the flowers get pollinated, they produce their fruits, and that leaf that was out all winter is shriveling up and dying, so it really doesn't even have a leaf in the summer. Come fall, new leaf goes out. And there was so much putty root in this uh, state park. Huh. Uh, it's a really cool one. Wow, I'd love to see that. So Trillium's putty root. Um, oh, what's that? This. You got it. That's putty root. That's putty root. That's why I can't believe Amazing. you did that. In the midst of nettles, you can't grab it. But so I don't even see the leaf at the base. It's completely dead, brown. Oh, wait, there it is. There it is. That's the putty root oh, leaf that yeah. was out all winter. Familiar orchid leaf. I was really looking for that, hoping we would see it. There it is. That's the putty root orchid. It's getting pollinated right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then it will turn into little hanging fruit brown pods that have the seeds. Okay. Um, how fun. <laughs> yeah. And right. There are places um, where there, there is a lot today. Oh. Um, but uh, it can be hard to see because it kind of, especially if it's just brown back there, it kind of blends in and you don't notice it given the color of uh, of those flowers, kind of a crimson, dark brown slash yellowish green. Yeah, it's it's a sort of, I feel like it's a strange and unusual stalk and flowers, but the flowers themselves aren't particularly exciting. No, you have to kind of get up close and then look into them to see the complexity of an orchid flower. Right, yeah, I can see that close up. This is Interstates, and we're listening to Ellen Jaycart on the podcast How to Survive the Future. We'll be right back. States, Alex Chambers, welcome back. We're in the middle of McCormick's Creek State Park with botanist Ellen Jacart. It's about 25 years in the future. Let's get back into it. So when I was working, you know, 40, 50 years ago, the single biggest hazard that our workers had out in the field was, was ticks and, and tick-related illnesses. As the years went by, we saw an incredible increase, not only in the number of ticks that we saw, in the range of the ticks, because when I started my career, Lone Star ticks were known from counties in southern Indiana near the Ohio River. The Lone Star ticks are now all over the Indiana Dunes National Park. So they've expanded their ranges, the populations are higher, in part because the um, invasive shrubs have uh, really dominated the understory of a lot of our forest systems. And, and when those shrubs make that sort of dense thicket in the understory, it provides cover uh, for the small mammals, for the deer who are the hosts for the ticks. So there were a couple of groundbreaking studies back 50 years ago that um, pointed out that if you go in and you count the number of ticks in a forest that has Asian bush honeysuckle in the understory, and then you remove all the Asian bush honeysuckle and you go back and you count the ticks, there's a significant reduction in the number of ticks. And what it means for people is that the public health office notes that there's a significant reduction in the tick-carried uh, illnesses. And, and those include not just Lyme disease, which is pretty well known, and Rocky Mountain spotted fever, which has been a bad problem in southern Indiana, but also ehrlichiosis and some others that I can't even remember the names. It's, it seemed like about every 
five years or so, a new disease was identified that we didn't realize before, that the field workers had had it, and but nobody knew what it was. And then they would trace it, and it would be traced to a tick, and it would be a new uh, tick-carried illness. As that threat spread and more and more people became aware of the health implication of invasives, they actually were able to pass more stringent regulations so that plants that were going to be sold had to, to go through an assessment and shown to be non-invasive before they could be sold. But it wasn't magic pixie dust that just made all the invasives already out there on the landscape disappear. And they didn't disappear. They seemed to do better with climate change. The slightly higher CO2, the earlier growing season is something that invasive species can often adapt to better than native plants. And so where we had invasions, they continued to spread unless the landowner or the public agency was willing to go in and control those invasives. And, you know, they had to make hard choices. I think in, in those years, agencies in particular became a lot more strategic about, we've got all of these acres, where do we have enough money to spend and be able to remove the invasives and protect the biodiversity that we have? And so, you know, in, in most public areas now, you'll see almost sort of what you might call sacrifice areas that have just grown up in oriental bittersweet and Asian bush honeysuckle. But where there was diversity, the nicest areas, they've drawn a line and that's where they focus their efforts so that we still have some remnants that you can walk to and, and see what things look like once upon a time before invasives really took over much of the landscape. Hi. Hi. Having a good hike? No. <laughs> We're seeing some of the spring ephemerals that are now fading, like the May apple flowers. Oh, we've got the ferns that are coming out. Here's a nice fern. Look at this. Oh, I love this one. This is glade fern. It is um, just this tall tufts of ferns and uh, just simple pinnae on the frond. And uh, it's, it's a fern that really likes moist woods, and that's what this is. And importantly, deer don't eat ferns almost ever. In ancient history, when Brown County State Park had such high deer populations that the hills were actually brown, that was 1989, and it was my first year in Indiana, and I could not believe in the middle of summer, I was seeing these huge hills that were brown. The only green left was Christmas fern and a few other ferns that the deer refused to eat. What was really most dramatic about Greens Bluff Nature Preserve and what drew attention to it and what got it protected by the Nature Conservancy, boy, back in the 1960s, were the hemlocks. There were these gorgeous remnant stands of hemlock lining the bluffs. And they were there because in the last, when the glaciers were there, it was cool enough, it was wet enough, they established. And as the glaciers receded, they held on in these little ridges and canyons where they were protected from the heat of the middle of the day. And they were beautiful. And then as the years went on, they stopped reproducing so much. We just weren't seeing young, young hemlocks in the stand anymore. And we figured that that tied to climate change and that we were seeing mortality among some of the older uh, hemlocks. And well, maybe it's just too warm. It's too dry in late summer due to the changes we were seeing in the climate. And that was not helping. But the final nail in the coffin was hemlock woolly adelgid. 
that's a, a little bug looks like a kind of a mealy bug that attacks hemlocks specifically. And we had been waiting for it to arrive in Indiana for decades, hoping that it would stay away because we are hundreds of miles from the closest hemlock stand in Kentucky. And we had hoped we were safe. Unfortunately, it came in the way I was afraid it would. People are buying hemlocks for landscaping, and they're coming from Tennessee and North Carolina, both of which are covered in hemlock woolly adelgid. And so some hemlock woolly adelgid came in on one of those landscaping shrubs, uh, landscaping trees, and then it moved out into Green's Bluff. And so, oh, it was about 10 years ago, the last one pretty much died. Do you remember the moment when you realized that it had come to Indiana? Yep, because I'm, I have been for many years. They, they send out reports from the Division of Entomology and Plant Pathology. I used to work with them as a, as a partner, and every time there's a new insect pest, they send out a report, and I saw that report, and my heart sank. And I had <laughs> tried for years to get that division to put an external quarantine on hemlock, meaning that we would not bring hemlock into the state because of that very risk. We saw twice in Michigan that it was landscaping hemlocks that brought hemlock woolly adelgid into Michigan, and now they're fighting it. But they didn't do a quarantine, and those hemlocks kept coming in, and it finally spelled the end of hemlock in Indiana. That's unfortunate. Idiots. I'll just put you in here. Had a few roots on it, and they're pretty good at rerooting, so. And what is that? Wild ginger. Oh, I should have shown you. Wild ginger, that's the flower, and a fruit is being produced there. But, and if it can reroot, maybe those seeds will finish ripening and be able to start mm-hmm. more plants. It's a real shallow-rooted plant. Hmm. I use it a lot in my landscaping because it makes, like right there, it's a beautiful carpet of wild ginger. So that's kind of a lot of my landscaping. One thing I was thinking about was like the pink turtle head, right? Yeah. And, you know, having pretty much lost that in the recent decades, um, and how when you, you know, the first couple decades of you being here, it was just this vast swath of amazing pink flowers. And not to sound callous, but like, it's one kind of plant and it's one small spot. You know, what does it matter, I guess? Yeah, boy, I've gotten that question over the years. And I guess, you know, there are different ways of looking at it. You know, if you're a spiritual person, these are amazing plants, plant species that have evolved over hundreds of thousands of years and have this intricate relationship with the pollinators and the wildlife that eat the fruits. And and it's a part of a network. And by pulling out an individual species, it changes all of that connections. And it's just like a car. If you have a car and you pull off a windshield wiper, well, it'll still drive just fine and you got one wiper. And then if you take, you know, the steering wheel and, well, that's a little difficult to make it go. And, and as you remove one piece after another, it just gets harder and harder for the system to actually function. And ultimately, from a selfish perspective, these systems support us. These systems are what keep human, the human race going by cleaning our water, by providing oxygen, all of these different things that nature is doing for us. And if we're basically tearing it apart to the point where it no longer functions, we are harming ourselves. So there's a lot of uh, uses beyond simply the fact that All living beings, I believe, have the right to survive.
Well, that was a little excessive. I will, I will step back from that. All species have a right to survive. The evolution that created those species should be respected. And individuals are going to die. But when you start seeing whole populations blinking out, that's kind of the canary in the coal mine. You're seeing real impacts and reasons that that species can't survive. That should be a red flag to us about what about the human species? What's, what's causing all of these extirpations of native plant species? And what does that mean for humans? Okay, so we, here's the park office, and back here, you cross the road to mm-hmm. Trail 2. Okay. You go down, there's a split off to see the old quarry, which is worth seeing. It's fun. A lot of, a lot of history there. The limestone was loaded onto boats on the creek. Oh, wow. Cool. And, but if you go straight, <clears throat> what I recall kind of in this area, it's before you get close to the, the McCormick's Creek. If this is a low area, mm-hmm. there's some down trees and it's just kind of wet mm-hmm. and mushy, that's where the um, uh, pink turtle head is. So that should be it right there, unless I'm misremembering. So Oh, know. thanks. Mm-hmm. Because you probably know this place well enough. Well, I've got multiple maps. I always grab ones. extra ones. Cause, really? Yeah, it's because sometimes it's like, well, wait, does that trail connect to that trail? Yeah, like right. if I do this, and so yeah, yeah I have extras. <laughs> cool. All right, bye, Alan. That was episode three of How to Survive the Future, a show about today from an imagined tomorrow. I produced the show with Allison Quantz, who also came up with the title. We had music by Airport People, Backward Collective and Last Ledges, and Ramon Monras Sender. How to Survive the Future was produced in partnership with Indiana Humanities, with funding from the National Endowment for the Humanities, and with further support from the Writers Guild at Bloomington. You can listen to more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. All right, it's time for a break. When we come back, poems about walking in the dark time and memory, and then the most important cyclist you've probably never heard of. Stick around. Interstates, Alex Chambers, we're back in the present, but what if memory could flow backward? Here's poet Shauna Ritter. Daylight savings time. The last two days I have risen to light, but for weeks before I stepped out into the barely dawn, the dogs' big paws padding beside me as we walked the long gravel drive, circling back to the pond's little shore. The last two nights I have stepped into shadow, though it is still early evening, hours before real dark. The dog and I walk toward the field where the full moon Blue moon grazes bared trees the way eyelashes might light on a cheek. As a child, if I found a stray lash, I'd place it on my fingertip to make a wish, close my eyes, draw in my breath, blow. I don't remember the wishes, but recall the way belief held in that weightless gesture, the way I trust my steps on the path I can't see my dog beside me as the world falls past time, as if changing a clock changes anything at all. Avignois, the desire that memory could flow backward. And that definition comes from the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows. There is a woman who rows alone across the Atlantic day after day. She faces the water she left in order to pull toward the shore where she is going. On clear days, she turns her head and twists her torso to look at a line where blue wavers into gray. She imagines herself arriving, but she must turn backwards if she is to go forward. 
On days when fog sets in and rain falls, she cannot see it all. She keeps on rowing, trusting her strong, calloused hands, the tendons in her arms, taking rest only briefly in the drift of current. She pulls and pulls, longing for the lip of shore, for the day she can look back on the ocean crossed alone. Shauna Ritter's poetry and short stories have appeared in various journals and magazines. Learn more at shauna-ritter.com. Okay, we turned the clock forward. Now let's turn it back, a little more than a century. I think it's just so surprising when you go back through and you find like all of these old um, magazines and newspapers from these French publications, and like he's on the cover of all of them, and they, you know, giant headlines and that kind of thing. So, it, I don't think you, re- you really realize how powerfully important he was at that particular time, and and that he was able to carve out not only space for himself, but also just for the African American and Black population on a bigger scale. And I think he understood that right from the get go. Like I mean, he like even as he was doing that, he totally understood that. So that's where it's it's an extraordinary story, right? I mean, like, you know, so yeah, so he, he set all these world records and he did all this wonderful stuff, and that's certainly fine, but it's, it's not really a, a bicycling movie as it is about race and society. Before football was at the top of the American imagination, before basketball was creating stars, the U.S., and really the world, was obsessed with track cycling. That's where the stars were. And right at the turn of the 20th century, the superstar was Major Taylor. Major Taylor got his start in Indianapolis. And a documentary about his life comes out this Monday, February 26th. It was produced right here at the WFIU-WTIU offices by Todd Gould. Todd recently made the trek downstairs to the radio studios to talk with me about who Major Taylor was and how making a documentary is really less about the film and more about the community that results. So, Major Taylor. He was born in 1878 in Indianapolis. His parents named him Marshall Walter Taylor. His father served in the U.S. colored troops during the Civil War, and then they moved from Kentucky up to Indiana right before he was born to be able to um, have greater economic freedoms, social freedoms, and things like that in Indiana that that the family was not able to get in Kentucky. And he, as a youngster, started working for a couple of different bicycle manufacturers in Indianapolis. This was before automobiles really came into vogue when people didn't have automobiles. But bicycles were the fad. That was the trend at the turn of the 20th century. And this gave him an opportunity, even as a young African-American, to be able to carve out a place for himself and to give him some agency. He wasn't just working at the bike shops. He was also riding. And one day, a couple of promoters saw him in this race. Where he, uh, even completely untrained, he, able, he was able to step in and be within two seconds of the world record for the one-mile race. And so they said, hey, I think we can really do something with this kid. And, and uh, if we train him correctly and, and help him in some ways, he actually has a chance to be an, an amazingly talented athlete. This was a time also when... Track cycling was a, was more popular than baseball. It was more popular than um, horse racing. It was more popular than boxing at the time. People that were in this particular sport were making more money than anybody else. So, like the top baseball players of the era would make twenty five hundred dollars a year. Okay, Ty Cobb and uh, Christy Mathewson, these top baseball players, would make twenty five hundred dollars a year. Major Taylor, at the same time, was making over fifty thousand dollars a year, year after year after year. So it, it helps to kind of a puts around that as to what this guy was able to do and the kind of talent that he had. He went to Canada to 
win the world championship at, at that time and then was able to then start racing all over the United States. He was racing all over Europe. He was a sensation at the time. I mean, I, I think as the only black face in the crowd, he stood out most certainly, but I think it was also something that intrigued fans of the sport and then sort of launched him into this stratosphere of, of amazing athleticism uh, and talent. He was also, he spoke three languages and he he played the piano and the mandolin. He was he was really kind of a renaissance man at that particular time. And uh, and coming from a very humble background where he had no formal education and he is, um, his father was a coachman uh, that helped take care of a wealthy white family's horses and so they would take him along. And so this was something that was, it was so incredibly unlikely that this would have happened, right? But because he created these opportunities for himself, even from a very young age, he was able to come through and then um, they were able to have him come in and set these world records and set the world on fire, basically, with, with the excitement that, that surrounded this guy. And, uh, and he was attracting 15,000, 20,000 people to each event that he was coming to. So that was a big deal at the time and uh, something that was very exciting, I think, for fans as well as other racers, promoters uh, that wanted to, you know, have, you know, the, the, the Michael Jordan of, of, of track cycling to be able to step in with that kind of that high level of talent. He was on the cover of magazines across Europe, and he did product endorsements, too. His role, even as a spokesman for like, a, you know, for them to hire a black face to come and uh, promote, you know, uh, bicycle parts or other um other things that he was helping to promote, right? They would say, you know, we want this guy to help sell products and uh, and have these kind of commercial endorsements. And that was at a time when that was not happening either. But Major Taylor was so good and so famous that, like, people wanted him to be a part of that. Because he'd been such a big deal and because so few people know about him today and because he was from Indianapolis, Todd decided to do a documentary about him. Yes. And then you had to go and track down all the history. Right, right. So a lot of it is sort of digging through. There are four or five really good biographies that have been written about Taylor. So I read those. He has his own autobiography. So I read all of that. And then you sort of figure out, well, okay, um, how do we tell the story most effectively, right? Sometimes it might be a soundbite from a historian or archivist or athletes and, and sports executives, right, to talk specifically about the fact that, well, because Major Taylor did this, that gave me an opportunity, you know, 100 years later to be able to do these same kinds of things in, in the world of sports. So I, I think that that's, that's exciting. So, you know, I was reading up about all of that and then also starting to dig through a lot of, like, old photograph archives. And um, there's no film footage of Major Taylor that, that like, newsreel film and stuff like that didn't, didn't really exist at the time. Nor do we have any radio I- interviews or anything with him. So, but I do have a ton of photographs that I've been able to locate. And not just with a couple of archives here in the United States, but giant archives in Paris and in Germany. There were also a lot of photos in private collections. And finding those was a real treat for Todd, because the professional archivists got excited, and they could bring those photos into the public record by showing them in the documentary. And then make sure that that person who's the private collector is then linked with the archivists in these other places around the United States to make sure that they have connections to be able to use those maybe perhaps, you know, in something later on as some sort of exhibit that they're maybe trying to do. In some ways, that's Todd's whole goal in making documentaries. It's almost not about the film itself, but the connections he can help people make beyond the film. I find that stuff just not only fascinating, but just incredibly exciting for me as a as a filmmaker to be able to say yeah let, let's let's pull all these groups together have you met so and so have you met so and so have you do you realize that this person has this thing and you know and may, one person might be in San Diego and somebody else is in Chicago and somebody else is in Boston and they're like we had no idea you know but now they're all talking to one another right so i mean we could talk a little bit about the congressional gold medal act but that all kind of came about too because i was connecting some people in Chicago with this museum in Massachusetts and people in Indianapolis. And so trying to get all these people to talk to one another. And now we have this opportunity because of Congressman Jonathan Jackson's efforts uh, in in the House of Representatives. And he is Jesse he, Jackson's he, Jesse, son. Yeah, so, so Jonathan Jackson is Jesse Jackson's son and the godson of Martin Luther King Jr. And he is a congressman from the first district of Illinois, which is in Chicago. And um, he 
is wanting to promote this Congressional Gold Medal Act to try to get Congress to recognize Major Taylor you know, posthumously. They interviewed Congressman Jackson for the film, and Todd said that a lot of people came up to the congressman after the interview to push for Major Taylor to get a Congressional Gold Medal. The congressman said yes, he would introduce an act to try to make that happen. And then... Two weeks later, I turn it on YouTube, and there he is on the floor of Congress reading that very act. And I was like, there we go. And, and so I think, boy, that's, you know, to, to the extent that we can help sort of help facilitate that as, 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 uh, as PBS and NPR storytellers, I, I think that that's, you know, the very best thing that we can do. I actually really love that idea that the legacy really of what comes about as through the creation of this documentary is not the documentary itself, but the conversations that happen. Yes. All the people you bring together. Absolutely, Alex. Yeah, yeah that's uh, yeah. that's exactly what it is. And I and I and so it's so fun and rewarding for me to see that kind of stuff happen. Major Taylor, Champion of the Race, premieres on WTIU and PBS Video on Monday, February 26th at 8 p.m. Eric Rensberger is a local poet here in Bloomington. He self-publishes his books and sometimes guerrilla publishes his poems on public kiosks and lamp poles. I like the way these little prose poems take everyday life and make it a little stranger. I hope you do too. Reading. The article said, the public figure said, his intentions had been misrepresented by those saying negative things about him. I was reading in a hurry because I was fundamentally uninterested in the story but thought it was something I should want to know more about. Because I was speed reading, I read intentions as intestines. They misrepresented my intestines. This was so close to making sense that I paused and reread the complaint about what was being said that was quoted in the article I was not really interested in. And I thought about what misrepresented intestines might look like. I took a sip of coffee, realizing that my reading was no longer speedy and that it had been slowed down in order to contemplate not something hard to understand or beautiful to read, but an absurdity that both confused and stimulated the imagination. Why do I push myself to read so fast, so early in the morning? I thought about my intentions. Historical imagination. They moved about in smaller rooms. We have proof of this. Awkward as it seems, they still managed to get from one room to another by edging around the stacks and piles. In the rooms where one would sit and talk, the furniture was so close together knees touched. But knees were smaller then. We have proof of this. Even if the seating was cramped, there was still room for a table with a small surface area to sit between, say, an armchair and a small couch or love seat. You could set a drink on it or an undersized sandwich, perhaps even something you pulled out of your pocket because pockets were bigger then and we carried in them things that nowadays we would leave at home. We have proof of this. So out of the pocket comes an antler inset with obsidian flakes along the outer edge. It could be laid across the knees where they touch. So much easier to stay here talking with each other than to get up and edge our way out, edging not just the piles this time, but each other as well. But it might be worth it just to get out of the rooms, pass through a final door, and stand outside breathing. To be done with small rooms for once. We have proof of this. Eric Rensberger. You can find more at ericrensbergerpoetry.net. You've been listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org slash interstates. 
If you like the show, you can review and rate us on Apple or Spotify and tell a friend. Okay, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up, but first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers. Avi Forrest is our associate producer. Our social media master is Julian Blackburn. We get support from Aabon Binder, Mark Chilla, Sam Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Special thanks this week to Ellen Jaycart, Todd Gould, and Luann Johnson, producer of Poets Weave, for the poems. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. Music in the Major Taylor story was made for the Major Taylor documentary by Tyron Cooper. All right, time for some found sound. That was banging icicles off the dormer window to prevent ice dams. Recorded by Mary Craig. Thanks, Mary. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks, as always, for listening. Riding back at the top of the hunter's moon.